0: once again to the spring lectures here at the BMA Seminary. Had a nice session this morning. Looking forward to more uh, exciting and uh, intriguing information from Dr. Carroll this afternoon. The (coughs) display that we saw outside are provided by our benefactors and especially this morning we had the dedication of the Blaylock Torah and we want to make sure if you didn't see it this morning come by and take a look down here. We're glad to have our benefactors with us this afternoon, too. Ken and Barbara Larson, and we did their introduction this morning. They spoke, and he declined not to speak uh, to us this afternoon. But he's back there. He's with us. Glad they're here, fellowshiping with us again this afternoon. Our lect- special lecturer this afternoon again is Dr. Scott Carroll, and uh, we'll cut down the introduction a little bit this afternoon since we've heard it before. Give it a little more time to speak to us this afternoon. Dr. Carroll PhD in ancient history at Miami University and also a MA in history from the church and uh, religion history side from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Also has done postgraduate work at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati and traveled around the world lecturing and uh, speaking with him this afternoon. It's like one of the things that he's really engaged in likes that really encourages him the most is being able to go into West Africa and lecture there at one of the universities and encourage those guys there in West Africa that don't have as much access to these kind of documents as we do here in the United States. We appreciate him coming this afternoon. Dr. Arrow, would you come? and Bless us again.
1: Well, it's good to be here again. Uh, welcome back. For those who are... Uh, with us this afternoon. Uh, We'll kind of dovetail with uh, some of the things that we've talked about and uh, so forth. And for those who have come back for the second installment, uh, welcome back and uh, we will uh, try to uh, overcome the temptations of letting our food digest and uh, enjoying the afternoon and all and really get into some of the things that are set upon us. Um, It's my uh, Thrilled to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, thank you as well again for the vision and generosity of the uh, Larsons. Um, what, oh, by the way, speaking of West Africa, my appointment there is at a university called the University of Joss, which is a leading institution in Africa. And I learned on my way in the door, in the door that a sister in here is a graduate from the University of Jos. Right. Hello. So, welcome. Uh, It's good, good to have a a Nigerian with us. That's uh, that's good. So, be like home. I'll be there in two days. Um, What I what I intend to do today, this afternoon, is to talk to you a little bit about the Jewish traditions of how a Torah is written, and uh, we'll contrast it with some things that you saw this morning. So that we can contrast tradition with what in the case of your Sefer Torah um, is uh, reality. And you'll see the two don't always mesh up. And that's just something to realize and to understand. If I were to ask the uh, uh, regular um, uh, educated churchgoer, who would had some background maybe uh, about Judaism and scrolls and things like that, and ask and say, if a Torah scroll has a correction, an error in it, is it kosher? Can they keep it? What do they need to do with it? And oftentimes, someone will respond by saying, no, it should be buried. Sometimes they um, slip up on buried and say burned, uh, which is a, was a tragic mistranslation of a description of Torah scrolls that we had at the Vatican Library where someone in Italian translated buried, burned, Uh, because I told those of you who were with us earlier that in fact it is a tradition amongst Jews to bury Torahs, and we'll talk about how and when that's done um, here. Well, if in fact uh, it is the tradition to bury uh, uh, Torahs that have mistakes, mistakes that are corrected. Uh, you would see that yours here uh, has almost 600 in it. But instead, they were lovingly corrected, and it was used for hundreds of years. All right? So, a very different mentality. So, what I'd like to do is go through some of these traditions in, that we have from Judaism and tell you what the ins and outs of the laws are, the best that I understand it, and then uh, try to contrast it with the reality. Of a scroll such as such as you have, um, now uh, that, by way of introduction, I, I'd like to say one of the most famous translations ever done was something called the Septuagint, or sometimes pronounced Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and was in fact the uh, translation of choice used by Jesus and the disciples. So uh, it's, it's a great thing to see that Jesus and his disciples, oh, they could have used Hebrew, and there are times when their, their opponents are debating them and quoting from the Hebrew, and they're quoting back from the Greek because they want to impact the people who are around them with God's word in the common language. And so uh, the common language in the time of Christ, uh, the street language was Greek. Um, The uh, language within the home was Aramaic. And the language in the synagogue was Hebrew. And the language in Pilate's court and elsewhere was Latin. So they lived in a complicated world. But that said, we actually have a a tradition of how the scriptures were translated from Hebrew into Greek. And I'm just going to summarize that very quickly to get at a point here. It's called The Letter of Aristeas, and it contains some things that are true, and it contains some things that are fictionary. Um, In this story called The Letter of Aristeas, uh, it it gives an account of how 70 translators were given portions of either the entire Old Testament or the Torah. Uh, There's debate on that, but they were put supposedly in Pharaoh's lighthouse, one of the seven wonders of the uh, ancient world, and they all translated in isolation, and they came out 70 days later, and they compared the translations, and they were all identical. Now, that's a tradition. And we create these traditions around God's word, and it's the same thing is done with modern translations. Uh, The same thing is done by by people well-meaning with the King James Bible. The same thing is done by uh, people, I'm sure, with the NIV, or it will be done, and down the line. And somehow we think we need to help God out with preserving His Word. And we do so by creating stories and traditions and things that help to ensure that these things are accurately uh, preserved over time. So just something to to take into mind. That said, we're going to have a mix of things. We're going to have some of that, and we're going to have a lot of many, many traditions that I'm going to try to unpack some of them and help you to understand just how dedicated the Jewish scribe called a sofer was to his work. Um, you may have heard somewhere along the line that there are over 4,000 rules that, it, that a Jewish scribe needs, needs still today, to memorize in order to properly transcribe um, a Torah scroll. And um, I'm going to summarize those. I actually have an English translation of those rules. And I have it compiled together uh, for your university. And they're in PDF format. And if you want to read all the things that briefly I'll be referring to in our time together today... You, you can read the different rules and things, and some of them I'll actually be reading from. But that gives you a little bit of background. Um, let's start a then with our dialogue here of how they made a Torah scroll by talking about sources. And we have medieval uh, rabbis like Maimonides, and we have in his writings uh, descriptions of how proper Torah scrolls have been copied and the scriptures have been copied. And there'll be debates. Uh, For instance, just for instance, in a few minutes here we'll be talking about how the skins are made. Well, what if your community was under persecution and the guy that made skins was gone? Do you have a Torah scroll made by skins, made from skins processed by a a non-Jew? Well, there'll be some Jewish teachers that weigh in one way and others another way. That could be a complicated thing. And when you have all these rules, there are people guarding them and all, and, and codifying or collecting them over time. So we can go back through time and look at guys like this guy, and we can see how they decided on things to know how these sorts of things are done. Um, Uh, there are also written sources rule books on how to and the one that i'm using is the one on the left uh from 1835 and it's it's not a new collection of rules and regulations but one that has taken all the early traditions and has tied them together and so this is the one in translation that's provided for your curiosity if it's uh Something of interest to you. So when we're talking about what I what I'm getting my stuff from, it's coming from primarily from this rule book over here, but also from traditions. I contrast it with what really happens with a scroll like your own, because that's where the rub is, and they're not always the same. And it's a fascinating uh, story as they uh, sort themselves out. Okay, uh, perhaps the first place to start is who can copy a Torah. And by the way, I'm limiting my brief discussions just to the Torah, but there are other religious writings that the Jews have, many of them. And they all have their own rules and regulations, but it starts with the Torah. And so a person who works with the Torah also works with writing these other things, from marriage contracts to... Uh, scriptures for your doorpost to scriptures for prayer. I mean there are all kinds of things that all have their own regulations. The Torah, other books of the Bible written on scroll in scroll form. we 'll talk about those today. Um, each of these had their own set of rules associated with, with them. But um, I guess a very basic question is who, who can copy a, a Torah? And so we have here, you see the young hands in the older hands of the teacher I like that here again uh, an older hand guiding a young hand uh, someone has to be trained and it takes many years of training to be at a place where you can uh... you can write a Torah they they also have to be of age and so of age typically it always means at least thirteen but um, according to rules and regulations if uh, at thirteen uh, the uh, young male is not in puberty, uh, they have to wait and uh, they could wait as long as 19 and then at 19 they permit them to be to be a scribe. Um, while today there are female scribes, sophers, uh that's not according to, to tradition something that's acceptable all right so just just the way it is. Um, so in the very strictest, interpretation of things, we're talking about males, we're talking about males that are 13 years of age or older um, or 19 depending on their maturation and ones that have been trained many years in a uh, tutelage with a mentor who's working helping them to learn how to write and everything. When I read to you regulations concerning the writing you'll see why it takes so long uh, for someone to, be, to become a scribe. Of course the Torah is all handwritten So there's nothing It's not done by print or anything like that. When it's done, it's done by hand. And you may say, why is that the case? Why don't they just get a digital copy and just copy it that way and get a nice clean edition? Because they believe letter by letter they are preserving the Word of God. You see, and that's, if I dare say, I mean, in some ways... Because we have printed editions, we don't take those things into consideration. It's kind of like Zondervan preserves God's word. We don't. And there's a, there's a kind of a tendency for that. So um, they take a very active process in this. And now when we talk about who can be a scribe and how that's done and everything, furthermore, the, the scribe is um, done in, in a city. You'll have one. So here... Uh, my guess is you've got, in, you've got in Dallas, you have someone who, uh, a scribe, probably several, who would be hired out to do the various things that a synagogue would need. And so your closest local synagogue, my guess, is in Tyler. And so Tyler needs to have something written. They go and employ someone in Tyler. They come and work, and that's kind of what they do. Um, a Torah scroll, it depends on how ornate the writing is. And that's determined by the congregation. So the letters can be more ornate or less ornate. The, uh, do you remember my talking about tittles earlier that decorate the letters? They can be very ornate or not. Um, so they, uh, a Torah scroll on average takes about a year to copy. So somebody who's highly trained spends an entire year doing something and that's their, that's their work and their, la- their labor. So this represents a year of somebody's life, uh, not to mention the, the work that goes into the careful correcting of it over time. Um, so now we will have time for questions and so forth, so if questions come up along the way, by all means just write them down. And normally I'd feel free to just interact with you, but let's go through these so we can cover the details. And then, if you have questions, and if I'm able to answer them, I'll I'll try to do so. So, not just anybody can copy a Torah. Somebody who's highly trained, and so forth. And this should give us confidence in the text because it's been done by a professional, all right? Um, These scribe that we know are very close with uh, myself, my wife uh, Todd is very close with. He's done about 20 Torahs in his lifetime. And then he does other things as well. Um, uh, it's very hard for them to uh, keep uh, a living doing just that, depending on where they live at you all. Know, so. By the way, a Gentile cannot copy a Torah, according to their laws. Um, I think I told you earlier, I've made many students copy them. And so, But they would not be considered uh, kosher and usable in a, in a uh, synagogue tradition. Okay, what about the materials that they use? Well, uh, first it's a, it's a kosher animal. And um, it doesn't mean all kosher animals because there are fish that are kosher but they don't use fish skin for Taurus. But they, they, use, uh, they use calf skin, they use uh, sheep skin, they use goat, um, they uh, will use deer and things of that nature. Uh, just depending on what is accessible to them, uh, it is uh, not permissible for them to mix the kind of animals. Okay, so they use a certain kind of animal, and it's the same kind of animal that's used. Um, the same kind of preparation of the skin. They can't prepare. There are different ways of preparing the skin. They can't prepare it one way for part and another way for another. It all has to be done the same the same way. So there's regularity, uniformity to it. Um, Typically it's calf. The large ones that are out there in the hall are calf. Uh, The very small one is on uh, is on lamb skin or sheep skin. Um, uh, The the animal uh, should be clean, so not blemished or sick. Um, It's butchered in a uh, in a clean way, although According to their traditions, if they just found a skin on a dead animal, technically they could use that. All right, so they're all, always they have like this is what our requirement is, although we'll allow for this and this and this and this. So they have some uh, uh, flexibility in in some of these laws and regulations. Um, nevertheless, uh, who who should it should be a Jewish Uh, butcher that uh, kills the animal and drains the blood and it's all done in a a certain way that's humane and kosher and so forth Um, can it be a non-Jew? well some say yes it can be a non-Jew if they're supervised by a Jew and one of the big things that occurs in these writings on how a Torah is made is that there should be a dedication of every step along the way that what's being done is being done for the glory and holiness of the Torah. And so they have a prayer like that. And so every aspect along the way, and that includes the uh, killing of the animal and the preparing of the skin and everything. So it's pretty hard to have a Gentile go through that in in a meaningful way. So there has to be some kind of supervisor who can pray those things and make sure that the skins are done properly and right and prepared. And what they do after their skin, and by by the way, I mean, you come from ranching country around here. Um, If you imagine some uh, small community in the Sinai and imagine uh, several hundred skins uh, of calves, you know, this is a major investment. So uh, this, is a, this is something that's a, a big investment that a community's made to have the, the resources to be able to produce a, a torah. Um, so we have the uh, preparation of the skins. The, the skins are taken. They're, uh, they're put in line. Uh, they, uh, the, the hairs taken off of them. They're put on a rack. Uh, it's a process that takes about a month Yes, I had my students do this several times. I thought it was a good process. It, it, the campus got a little nervous of having these racks of skins up all over the place. Uh, it looked like deceased students of mine that had been <laughs> put up on, on racks. But uh, you know, what's Carol doing now? <laughs> uh, but n- nevertheless, it, it takes a process of skinning and, and scraping and uh, actually some of the earlier recipes include using animal dung that's used um, as an agent on the skin and so it's a very, very smelly, dirty process. Uh, We used to have an animal skin processing plant in our town uh, that made uh, skins for the uh, auto industry and there are all kinds of EPA problems and regulations and so forth um, as a result of that, uh, and eventually they, they left. Yeah, that's good. So, uh, the when when S- when Simon Peter goes to Simon the Tanner in the book of Acts, and he's living close to the seashore. I read that and say, this guy's got a smelly job. He's living by the coast where they're getting a breeze, and it's it's carrying out the nox, noxious. Toxic fumes, and here Peter, remember where he had the vision on the rooftop. It, this is a this is a tanner. It's a it's a guy who was was a Jew, and this was his job. So um, a very smelly, toilsome process to make each skin. Um, that's that's that. Uh, you can experiment with it yourself and see what it's like and uh, see how long it takes to do. And yeah. My wife doesn't recommend it because she's uh, dealt with the smell in the house. <laughs> Honey, you're just not adventuresome. That's not true. All right. Um, so you see, some of, you see some of the steps here with uh, taking the hides and then uh, skinning the, uh, scraping them and stretching them and all that. Then they have to trim them and uh, they're they're from the back down around the ribs, so they're not up. So they're cut then along the back and squared out. And um, with some of them, like the large one that you have back here, the large German one, you know, that's coming from a that's from a big calf, a cow. Um, those are quite large. So some of the skins can be large, some can be small. Um, I should just say on the preparation of the materials, skin has three layers. And actually, how it's split and how it's cut, in all, varies. Um, For instance, you have out on the back table, you have a red ester scroll. It's been dyed red. That's not. Sometimes on the internet, they'll say this comes from red deer. That's not from red deer. There's not red deer in Yemen. All right. Uh, This is this is calf skin that's been dyed red. Um, that's the color they, they like to read their, their texts um, for the most part. But you'll notice that that's a very thick skin. I you People aren't touching that, are they? Just the ester? Are, are the ester? The just the back side of it. If you touch just the back side of it, you'll notice that it's kind of suedey. And it's actually, the three layers of the three layers of skin are there. Whereas with um, your Torah or any of the other ones that you see, it's been, it's been broken down into two layers. So it's thinner, it's lighter, um, it's smooth. So all those things. There are different ways of preparing the skins. The one is called Gevil where it's thicker and, and uh, suedey on the back. Uh, the, this other kind is called Cloth is the Hebrew name for it. It's, some people have asked me is it parchment? Not really. Parchment or vellum is down even thinner. It's a very thin layer. And so where in a non-technical context we can refer to this as parchment, it's really not proper. It's, it's, um, the most proper way of referring to it, but awkward, is to call it membrane. Right? But it's skin um, and uh, hides and so forth. All right. Uh, so a little bit about the preparation of the uh, of the skins um, and so forth, and they they come to the scribe in sheets, all right. So they're not they don't sew them together first. They keep them in sheets and write in sheets on them, as we'll explain here in a, in a second. Let's see here, uh, maybe, yeah, okay, all right. Um, the, the scribes got to prepare his writing materials. And so the uh, preferential pen is a quill from either a turkey or a goose. Now, a turkey is is an animal from North America, so they're not going to have turkey feathers in early uh, scrolls before the Columbus exchange. Uh, They use goose feathers. Some groups say that actually uh, reeds can be used as well, and you've got a picture here of reeds. You've got feathers here. Um, but uh, and they're, they're typically a, a Torah scroll should not have any metal touch it. Um, although with a pointer, the silver yod, some of you were asking what those were. Uh, they're pointers that are used to touch the text so that your fingers are not touching the text so it's red. But as it's being made, uh, because metal is associated with an instrument of violence, it's not um, uh, preferable to use that. However, there are some scribes who actually use uh, metal uh, as well, uh, pens. Um, When you get a close enough eye and good enough and really familiar with the scrolls that you have, and I'm not at that place with your particular scrolls because we look at many of them, and so they all kind of mix together, but it just takes time. You, you almost will be able to pick out when they dip their pen in the ink and when it's fresh ink or not, when it's becoming uh, a need to redip again. So you realize that process, that every couple letters, they're dipping the ink and doing that. It's an arduous, long, Painstaking process. By the way, a scribe will work, our friend works four or five hours a day on tours because it just wears them out. You know, being intense and having to do the ritual prayers and doing all that's involved with it, it just is overwhelming. So it's too much uh, for him to do beyond that. Um, the uh, other uh, kinds of preparation of materials are. People ask about uh, ink recipes, and uh, the major requirement with Torah ink is that it's black and remains black, because it's got to be read without. See, a lot of these precautions they have are set up so that the word will not be misunderstood. That'll be properly understood, and dark black ink uh, is not faded. It won't. One letter won't look like another. And so recipes had to ensure that the ink stayed black. So when you go back to the back again, uh, the uh, BMAT's uh, Conway Torah is, uh, has uh, a, fate, a fading that is a natural process. You look at R. And it has nothing necessarily to do with the value. Uh, the most valuable Torah in the back is the little one. And it's all faded. So it's just, um, this is a natural process, unfortunately, that happens over time. But they do everything that they can to ensure that the ink is dark. And so they use, uh, they use oak gall, like here. These are so attached to, do you know what they are? They're little balls that are attached to oak leaves, and they're made by like uh, insects uh, laying their eggs in them. And they take these and they boil them. And they extract from them a a liquid. And um, they uh, combine it with gum, Arabic, that's crushed. And then some other elements, sometimes tar. There there are basically two recipes for ink. One is um, uh, organic. So it's made up of things like this, natural kinds of things. And then there's inorganic. Which is made of carbon. Uh, they proscribed that—that that is, they prohibited, they—they—they uh, they, they, they denounced the use of inorganic ink because they learned over time that the carbon and other things like that um, deteriorated the writing surface. And so, again, in a way of preserving the text, in all, it was a lot easier to make the carbon ink but they steered away from it um, as a uh, result of wanting to have something that was better preserved. Okay, so the text is taken, and I showed you earlier today that there are actually pinholes in, along the outer margins of the skins. And those pinholes then, they line up, and in this in modern sense, they use a ruler, uh, they could use uh, strings, and they would take um, a, uh, a sharp object, like a, like a thorn, and they would go ahead and scrape that along the surface to, to make a line. And if you look carefully at these, you'll see that they're lined. The margins are lined, and then there are a number of lines that go down it. And uh, the, the number of lines will vary uh, depending on the tradition in modern torahs there are 42 lines so if you talk to a jew they'll say oh a torah is 42 lines well that's a modern torah the the ones that we work with can be 57 they can be 62 they can be they can be on the same torah on the same skin 57 49 54 57 49 50. and they rotate back and forth as they use a very complicated system of uh, of uh, copying their word in a, in a very unique way so I've seen that um, in limited uh, fashion but um, they, they have to they have to come up with a number of lines and I think I showed you those who were here earlier how when you put a replacement sheet in to adjust things when it's not the exact number of lines and they have to erase lines over here so that it all matches up in everything so these things can be pretty complicated with how it's done, but for the most part, since 1600, 42 lines becomes the uh, the standard number of lines for a um, for a Torah. Uh, but that will vary. So here we have somebody lining the Torah. Um, usually, this is done. It was done in the past by the scribe, but in modern times, they actually get their skins already cut, already. Uh, lined and everything's done for them already so they they don't have to do that. But look, I just got a picture here to show you, uh, to tell you what my eyes look at when I'm looking at this. Okay, so we're at the end of a book Um, but notice here, this column is much skinnier than these columns. So there'll be times where the width of the columns will actually vary and will vary according to the traditions that they're following with copying the text. So all those things are, nothing is accidental. All those things are an organic part of how your Torah has been copied. And so if there are varying widths, those things are intentional. And so should be, uh, should be noted. Okay, now a bit about how to write the text. And here we enter into uh, some very uh, complicated features. Um, look at all the aspects that are required for just writing an aleph. You see those all numbered? Um, and I have from the work that I've kind of built this around that I uh, have translated for you. Uh, I'll just read a portion of this. But the aleph, the upper dot should be made to look like a yod. Ideally with a little prickle above it. The prickle below on the right touches the roof of the olive. And if it does not, it is invalid, as will be explained. Ideally, the face of this yod, uh, with the prickle on the top, is turned to face slightly upwards. Uh, it goes on and on and on about exactly how each letter should be shaped. And so when we talk in terms of, if you've ever heard this before, there are 4,000 rules that a scribe needs to memorize in order to copy scripture. A lot of them have to do with the shapes of letters. Okay, just so you know. Um, A lot of them have to do with just exactly how each letter should be shaped. And you might say, and by the way, they don't always follow those traditions. So this letter has a very unique shape to it. And uh, for us with dating these Torahs, one of the things that we look at is the shapes of the letters how things bend which way they're they're uh, if they're curled or not and uh, this sort of stuff was really um, uh, outlawed by rabbis after 1600 and so we we look at this sort of this sort of uh, stuff um, we'll talk about the divine name and how that's written here in a second but um, the shapes of letters are all very uh, significant. And the reason is, uh, I guess I didn't copy it. Um, the, the reason is that as in any language, so in Hebrew, a lot of letters look alike. They just do. In in English, a lot of letters look alike. So you might not think so, but um, an E can look very clear. Similar to an F, or kind of like an I or a T or a P, and you have a little flaking that happens to the letter, and all of a sudden it it changes. And so one of the uh, one of the most uh, maybe uh, startling examples of that is in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, the the tradition, the Hebrew tradition of Psalm 22. Uh, where it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. says instead, like a lion, my hands and my feet. Well, the difference between they pierced and like a lion is the difference of the length of one letter. The short letter is like a lion. The long letter is they pierced. So when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, we were fortunate to have Psalm 22 in the Dead Sea Scrolls in this passage. And so looking at it, saw that the letter should be long and not short, which means that some ink broke away, and changed the entire meaning of a critical passage that relates to the Messiah. And so in fact it should read. They pierced my hands and my feet. But the difference in the Scripture is the difference of a tiny letter, two letters that look alike and their length uh, differentiating them. So these things were very important and the rules about how letters were copied were very important so nothing would get mixed up. Um, Other rules and regulations about letters is that they can't touch. Now you might think that can be uh, easily done actually the uh, standard distance between letters is this small yod, And uh, that's the uh, distance that should be between them. So you might think, uh, how should they uh, touch? But what happens when you're working with ink and a quill, you get blobs of things and the stuff touches. And so there are certain rules about how you can cut things or when you have to erase them and all that's done. When we talk in terms of your Having 580 corrections in it, many of them are just letters, shapes of letters being exact, and so forth. Um, Although happily, there are other things that make it very interesting and all, and it all makes it so that it's accurate and can be read with confidence. All right, Um, a bit about the divine name. Um, There, there are a number of names for God in Scripture. Uh, the adjectival attributes of who God is do not count in these categories. They're just the names for God. When a scribe encounters the name for God, they're supposed to deliberately pray, according to this text, deliberately pray and commit the writing of the name for God to his glory, to the glory of the Torah being copied. So they had to be very precise about it. Um, And that was any name for God, not just Yahweh, but any name at all. Now, you may know that with some scribal traditions with the Dead Sea Scrolls and later, they didn't even write the name Yahweh, but put in reverence uh, four dots for the name, the Tetragrammaton. Um, So you have these rules. Have you ever heard the rule that a scribe should bathe himself before writing the divine name? or change the quill that he's writing with, and things like that. There's no evidence of changing quills at all from this collection of rabbinical tradition. So I would say to you that probably was a tradition, but not one that was accepted. The bathing one is actually mentioned in this, this work. But they mention it by saying, some scribes who are seen as being very overly religious will write a sheet And omit God's name everywhere where it exists. And then we'll go and take a ritual bath in a mitzvah. And then come back in and write the names for God. But this guy says that's not to be preferred. Because the ink's not the same when that's done. And it doesn't look right. And it's not befitting of God. Um, My point is, based on the source that I'm sharing with you, It wasn't the acceptable tradition to take a bath before writing the name of God. All right, so that's another tradition that we hold to. Have you all heard that before? How many of you? Raise your hand, please. A whole bunch of us have heard that before. It's just not part of the tradition. And I've not seen in any man, I've only seen one Torah scroll of 10,000 where it appears like maybe there was a change in the uh, quilt. For God's name. By the way, some ink recipes included gold flakes, and I've seen a scroll that actually has speckles of gold in it, in order to glorify the word and everything. Isn't this interesting? All this stuff—it's uh, so. Um, uh, with with the name for God, uh, there was great reverence that was taken. That's without question. Um, I have asked my scribe friend. Uh, His name is Daniel. Um, If he does this kind of mitzvah, uh, ritual bathing stuff, and he said no. He will in the morning before writing, but it's not something that he does. Um, With writing the name for God, you can't dip your ink in fresh ink and start writing his name. They had rules like that. Because you could get a blob of ink, and it would mess things up, and then, you know. So instead you should be writing from another letter or start writing on a side sheet of paper and then and then write the name so they had regulations about how and when you could write the name for God but it's all done with great with great reverence um, and you know there I think I showed you from your own Torah that in the patch you had the name Yahweh in the patch so there are times where they say you can't have that but then you find in a scroll they did do it. you know. So you, you've you got this irregularity. of It's kind of like uh, the difference between uh, what you say and what you do uh, are not always line up. And then you ask the question, why do they then say they do these things if they're not doing it? And I think it goes back to that original letter of Aristeas where we want to protect the care with which we're copying the word because of what's going on. And we create around it traditions which may or may not be followed. Um, And at the end of the day, we don't need them. Because these people were invested in what they did to make sure it was right as they worked together as a community. So here you have the divine name, and obviously a mistake here. And, um, you know, this is part of a a scroll. Um, Here you have uh, the divine name, and you've got some kind of scribal mark beneath it for something. Um, here you have just an example of divine name and Elohim here down here uh, oh yeah you have the divine name but you have an erasure that was here which is clearly seen so you, you have this doesn't show this to be faulty it just gives us an idea of how they did this and the traditions with which they worked they took great care with writing the names for God they prayed before writing the names for God Um, There are all kinds of rules about, you know, uh, when an error is made. Yes, Denise, my wife has a question which I will respond to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great care, great sense of sanctity, but these supercilious rules that are created around it uh, were not were not followed, as we suspect that they may have been, and we we're told that they may have been. So. All right. Um, let me just do it this way and talk, because we've seen all of these earlier in your Torah. But um, how did they correct the text? Um, the first, first way before this is that when there's a blob of ink that came down, they were permitted, in some cases, to reshape that ink into the shape of the proper letter. Okay? Or it's called carving. Or they could, if two letters came together because of a pool of ink, they could carve between them. Those are small corrections, all right? With minor things relating to the writing of the text. You'll not find, it's very likely you'll not find with this text. Any, any letters that are touching at all. Um, they would the scribe himself, when he made a mistake, would erase with a sponge and um, sometimes have a knife to scrape. But usually, because they caught it fast, they could make an, a, um, a sponge and sponge it up without any residue. Those of you who were here with me earlier, we, I showed you some corrections where you could actually see the shadow of the letters underneath. So they were not always effective at doing it that way. When it starts absorbing into the uh, parchment, then you've got to take stronger measures to get rid of it. Um, I have seen on occasion a kind of whiteout that's used, believe it or not. Um, so we've se- seen that along the way, believe it or not. But um, when you take the, the sofa or the scribe, the erasure with a sponge, I've asked our friend Daniel, how many times do you make corrections making a scroll? And he'll say several hundred. So he do several hundred that he'll make. And then he gives it to a friend who will compare it against another copy. Uh, by the way, the early scrolls here are copied against other scrolls. And they have to be perfect and certified scrolls that they're copying against. When they... Later, what happened was that they would um, copy the scroll against a printed copy of the Torah. And these are called tikkun. And they vary slightly over time. Okay? So there's slight variations of how many words on a line and things like that. So we can actually drill down by comparing a Torah scroll with a printed copy and make a determination of about when it was copied. Alright, if that makes sense to you. Um, But, back on the erasures: erasure with a sponge, um, an erasure by scraping. Um, This could be done by the original scribe or by his compatriot. Um, You see marks in the margins for corrections that need to be done. The scraping is done with a knife. If the scraping is done too deeply, or if it's necessary, they'll go ahead and cut an entire patch out. Now, this is radical. You think in terms of like copying the text, actually cutting it and putting a patch in in order to make sure it's right. It's a very radical procedure. But it shows, again, the commitment that they had to make sure that the text was copied properly. Um, so I refer to that as patching. Um, there are times where they, not with your Torah but they insert words above uh, the line, not below too much, but it's above the line, but it's not something that's pertinent to your own, but it is a practice that's done. The Torah that uh, Ken Larson was talking about that went to Bethel, I can't remember, Ken, maybe you do, but there were about were about 2,000 words that were above the lines. All right. So imagine that, with 2,000 corrections that were made Above the lines were things. And someone wondered, how could, that, how could you have 2,000 mistakes? And someone speculated, maybe they did it by memory. Um, as far as we know, all uh, cases, the Torah had to be copied from an exact copy and done letter by letter, word by word, and not by memory to make sure it was done properly. But this is a, a radical example of something happened, which makes it very interesting. All right, so inserted words is a possibility and writing uh, and above the law. The inserted words here, I guess what I mean by that is actually when you have lines that have squished in, there are examples in yours earlier today. How many people were not here for the earlier session? I apologize then to you, but there are actually examples of lines that um, you will have typically maybe 30 letters per line, but all of a sudden you have 45 or 50. And it's because they've sk- skipped a line earlier and they've got to place it in there and squish it, squish it in. So they do that as, as well um, with this. Okay. Um, the items are sewn together. Uh, if they're not sewn together, they're not kosher, they cannot be read. They, it depends on how far they, they come apart. Yours has been all carefully repaired and is in good condition. Um, They're sometimes patched. They have to be sewn with animal sinew, so animal gut, uh, like a tennis string. Uh, The fact of the matter is, though, I've seen some sewn with yarn, sewn with um, basically whatever they had at hand in order to make sure they could use it. So on the one hand, again... Use animal gut, but if you don't have animal gut, you use whatever you need to use to make it happen, is the, is the idea. All right. Let me just make some apologetic comments. So that's a little bit about how a Torah is made and some of the rules and regulations. And there's a several hundred page uh, dialogue here that you can read if it's of interest to you. Um, I've tried to contrast it a little bit with your own Torah. Let me talk about some apologetic value of the Torah itself from what I see and just some observations that could be made. Um, Earlier on, there was a reference made to our relationship with Josh McDowell. Uh, I was in his uh, boardroom and Josh was talking about how the Bible's been preserved and talking about Jewish scribes and this sort of stuff. And I just rolled a German Torah out on his board table and said, Josh, come over here and look at this and his eyes opened up like pie, pie pans and he saw that there were a number of corrections that were made and this was part of the tradition of this and he realized it and it helped him immediately without saying a word he had a completely new appreciation for how God has worked to preserve his word not through magic and voodoo and you know folklore and stuff like that but for real people working together making sure it was right you know, so uh, yes, people who are committed to the text itself, but at the same time, a lot of practical elbow grease uh, by people uh, working to try to make sure it was right. Um, so I, I would start by saying there's you should take away from this that there was a great care with the writing of the Torah. And um, that should give us great confidence in the word itself. It was done by professionals, done by people who were pious and who took great care in what they were doing. And I've told you some of the traditions surrounding that. Um, there was great care with the corrections. So when a Torah was copied, as it was being copied, the guy copying it made corrections. Then he gave it to someone else, and the someone else, if he made several hundred corrections, he tells me his friend made half as many again. So they've made hundreds of corrections between the the two of them to make sure it's right and can go to a synagogue. Nowadays, they even send it to a computer for computer analysis. And it finds mistakes uh, in shapes of letters and things like that. But still, so you've got this kind of enterprise going on. And what we learn from a Torah like your own is that that continued on. As they read it, they found that there were minor things with it. That needed to be corrected and so forth. And that these minor corrections were made. They had 30 days to make them. They made them. They were serious about it. They wouldn't go and bury something that they've spent this much money and time preparing. Uh, There is a tradition that if a Torah scroll has four mistakes in a column, that it, it should be put away. Unless it has a column that has no mistakes. So it has a column that has no mistakes, you go ahead and correct the ones that have mistakes. So very practical about it, to make it happen, and working together, and you know to produce, by means of the community, to produce a text that you can 100% rely upon. All right. Um, this comment here about exemplars with apologetic consideration... They were copied from the very best copies. Alright? Always. Let me make a comment here. Just in passing for you to think about. You, You have all heard people criticize the Bible by saying it's come down to us like the game of telephone. Where I say something to you and you say something to him. And we go all the way down the line so that when it comes back to him, it's been terribly changed. And that's how the Bible has been terribly changed over time. Have you heard that before? All right. Um, Let me make some observations about that in relationship to the Torah scroll, how the Torah scroll can teach us otherwise. All right. The first observation I'll make is that before I went to high school, I was expelled from three schools. Right? Now, the reason that's important was that they went all the Catholic schools. And um, we would play the game of telephone, and I would sit in the middle and drastically change whatever the nun had said. And she would wonder how that happened by the time it got back to the nice boy sitting in the front. Um, okay, look, the first thing to note is that the Bible was transmitted by people who wanted to make sure it was transmitted right. Not by malicious 6th graders, alright? Um, the second thing is we have um, 100 people in here and uh, the some, you look at that and say yes, yeah, something would be corrupted over time. This Torah was read for 300 years. Um, 300 years before its exemplar came from one that was 300 years old. Its exemplar came from one that was 300 years old. You're back a 1,000 years and you've only gone through three people. Oh, It changes changes the dynamic a little bit. Um, another, Another aspect is if I said to you, I'm going to pass around the group here, I'm going to whisper something in your ear, and we pass it around. And then I'm going to shout in your ear, and you pass it around. And then I'm going to have it written, and you're going to copy it. And it's going to be copied around the room. And then finally, I'm going to have it copied, but you're going to copy it one letter at a time. That's how the Torah came to us. That's how Scripture came to us. It was copied a letter at a time with people praying over it. So I, I defy that kind of mentality that says somehow the Bible's been corrupted over time because it's been passed along through this game that's done. It completely misunderstands the, the whole scribal tradition, how things were done. So um, I would have you to keep that in mind. And remember that the next time you hear a criticism like that or someone comes up with something like that. So you can offer to them um, a reason for the hope that lies within you uh, with regard to that. And then finally, uh, this whole issue of changes that are made. Um, I I don't see these things as a negative. I I think you can see that now. I see the changes that are made of of an extraordinarily positive, piece of evidence that shows the commitment that people had to make sure that the word has come to us um, without any kind of error whatsoever. I can, I can assure you that your Torah is 100% accurate. But it's 100% accurate because of the commitment that people have had not only to write it, and to correct it and to check it and all of that, but to check it along the lines as it was read in synagogues and people listened carefully to the text. Today, we don't do that anymore. Again, it's it's Zondervan that preserves the word for us. We trust these things without being engaged with them because of the printed process. Um, I, I, let, me, let me add one other footnote to this and we'll see if there are questions and we'll end. But um, Another footnote is that it's commonly asserted, especially with the Torah, the Pentateuch, that it was written by a number of people over a long period of time where phrases were exchanged and sections were changed and stuff was done and it was adjusted around and everything else. Um, I told many of you, uh, the ones who were here last time, I had people, my students, copy scripture, copy scrolls and texts, if I went into them after they had been laboring on it for several months and said, oh, by the way, every time you have this phrase, I want this, and every time you have that, I want this, and I want you to change this over to here, and I want this done, it, they would kill me with their pens. It, it can't. They would barter me. It, it, it can't be done. It can't be done. You see, we look at the period of written text transmission as a period of Fluidity and potential error and all. I look at it quite differently. I look at it at a period where things are solidified and they're checked in a way where they're structured by columns and by rows and uh, in, in a way that can't be adjusted that way. And I, I think that some people who have come up with these assumptions have not worked with real manuscripts to see how they're written and how they're preserved. So just some things to uh, keep in mind that I hope would be of encouragement to you, a little bit about how torahs were made, um, legends and truth, and how it relates to your Torah, and a little bit about the apologetic value of knowing some of these things. Um, what kind of do we have time for a few questions? A Few questions? Yes. Right. I, based on my
0: understanding, the older they get, the better they are in quality.
1: Correct. Yeah, the, the, um, the point is that when you're comparing a number of texts, the closer you get to the source, uh, the, the more reliable it is. Um, but by the time that we have these sources, it's been over a thousand years, of careful traditions, of copying the text. And these things are very well established by the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then medieval manuscripts, down to your Torah here. And we can actually see a a line of tradition that is the same. Not only in text, but actually in how they copy it with large letters and small letters and this and that and everything else. They're following a tradition that is several thousand years old and uh, is one that's uh, trustworthy. Uh, Getting back beyond that, is, uh, the question is whether it's uh, possible at all. So right now, the earliest that we can get back is quite remarkable. would be the Dead Sea Scrolls and how they compare and overlap. Um, it's now, the only complete biblical manuscript of the Dead Sea Scrolls that we have is the scroll of Isaiah, the Great Isaiah Scroll. When it's compared with um, a, a codex called the Leningrad Codex from 1000 AD, so about 1,100 years later, when it's compared, there are 677 differences. I'm just telling you the truth. That's less than 10 a chapter. And most of those are spelling changes, word order, and things like that. None of them are significant in any way to have any bearing on major doctrinal things and all. And some are updated words, um, clarification with words, and things that help us with the translation. About one a chapter. So the point is, it's remarkably transmitted in, in a way. It would be deceitful for me to tell you, oh, they're all the same. It's the same, because it's not. But this is how it's been preserved, and we have every reason to be confident in it as a result. Yes? The red ester scroll, I'm
0: assuming the red was dyed. Yes. Prior to the writing
1: of the itself. Or yes. The Yes. How do you find a replacement panel? Support that. Well, they don't do because they don't switch like white. Um, they do have white that's made the same way, and sometimes I've seen red and white. But they're not like this white where it, this is a different process. Um, but they actually usually will replace it with a red panel. So. But it's- Yeah, it does. It follows the same law. Yeah. Yes? Yes. Um, the elongated letters that you see are techniques that the scribe is using to keep things apportioned right as he's copying them. Certain things have to end. Sometimes, some scribes And traditions end every book at the bottom of a column and start a new one at the top. So in order to do that, if they're off, they've got to elongate letters. Another thing that they do is whatever they're copying, they want to make sure they stay in step with it. So if they're getting, they've had some letters that are a little too small or too close together, they've got to make them long so they don't start a new word and get out of line with what they're copying. So it's a technique. You can think of it as, well, a sloppy scribe who's trying to plan out his thing. Uh, but in part, it's because they're being very careful to make sure things stay coordinated. Last question. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. We assume that it's because of damage to the Torah that it needed to be replaced to to correct it that way, to correct the damage. But it's also quite possible that it was because of some kind of uh, some kind of you know uh, unintentional errors that occurred that just couldn't be corrected as such because it was too complicated. So they just replaced it. Okay, God bless. I'm going to turn it back over to the President. Thank
0: you, Dr. Carroll.
1: Let's stand together
0: as we dismiss.